Welcome to the What Matters Today podcast from the Graduate Institute. I'm Dan Graham, Head of Communications at the Graduate Institute. In this podcast series, we ask members of our faculty to comment on key global issues. Today's episode focuses on the historical impact of the coronavirus. All of my guests are from the Graduate Institute's International History Department and include Mohamed Mahmoud Mohamedou, Professor of International History and Chair of the International History Department, Davide Radonion, Professor of International History, and Efrat Gilad, a PhD candidate in international history whose research is fully funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. My first interview is with Professor Mohamedou. We discuss an article he recently wrote in Le Temps, a Geneva-based newspaper. The focus of his article is about geopolitics in a post-coronavirus world. What has history taught us about global crises that we have forgotten or ignored? What have we not learned from past pandemics? In such matters of domestic politics, you might call them, there's more often than not, I think, a bit of amnesia uh, for all the talk about remembering the past, uh, and we indulge this all the time, there's generally more of an inclination to be driven in crises by the immediacy of things and often speak excessively in terms as well of the novelty, the latest this, the new that. And I think this we're seeing applies today and it applies also globally. So, of course, obviously the world has seen many crises before. There's a very long history of pandemics, even before the Middle Ages. Um, and that is a history of recorded practices, by the way, about these crises, how they spread, the nature of the infections, the devastation toll, the remedies that were applied or not, and so on. Uh, since about the 1300s, I would say, there's almost something of a cyclical nature to this every century or every other century. If you recall the big ones, smallpox, black death, the plague, the yellow fever, and so on. By the way, this is interestingly a steady stream since the 1980s in our times, so to speak, with AIDS, SARS, wine flu, MERS, Ebola, and Corona. So it's not so much that we haven't learned things medically, for sure we have, but rather I would say that societally, politically, we're often driven by this compulsion to seek quick fixes. A vaccine is all the talk these days and a return to normal, as if the normal was fine. And if anything, I would say what we have not learned is introspection and questioning of our relationship to the world, a bit of humility in how to engage and how to organize the world. We see it today in the conversation about Corona. It's too much about health and the economy when I think it's equally political and historically, and that's not addressed enough. And that's what matters deeply. You mentioned that the after-coronavirus period has ushered in the end of the after-September 11th period. Can you elaborate on this? So periodization is tricky in history. If you think about it, why do we think necessarily in terms of decades? Tracts of historical time can be delineated differently uh, any which way. And also this logic of post is itself problematic. It overemphasizes oftentimes the selected cutoff points, which can also be selected arbitrarily. Having said that, we do need some markers to make sense of the passage of time. And we can work with these, in fact, uh, relatively easily. The most recent period has seen important changes since about the end of the Cold War. So we used to talk about the post-Cold War to the 
9-11 events, which were so important. And since then, we have this long and loose moment. And I think we could have argued that we were still in it until recently, and that's my argument, um, in the sense that everything that transpired since then uh, has one way or another been under this long shadow of 9-11, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the global war on terror itself, the Arab Spring, Crimea, the election of Trump, securitization, the protest for democracy, uh, cultural and religious tension, and so on. Now, possibly, and we need to be modest in our projections, for the first time we're seeing, because of the magnitude of the corona moment, the opening of a potential tangible new moment and a, and a new referential in international history, which we can call for all purposes the post-corona world. So this post-9-11 world, I think, is what we can kind of examine a bit. And if we were to do that, I'd see four dynamics, ever so briefly, uh, giving us some sort of perspective in what we might expect. And, and these are projections. The first one is the strengthening of the role of the state, and specifically of the existing rising neo-authoritarianism. All over, we're witnessing statism reinvigorated. Statesmen and women are occupying this with too much enthusiasm. For sure, they're stepping out to, to do their work as expected by their societies. But I think there's a bit of an undercurrent of order that is paternalizing and ends up infantilizing the citizenry, if you think about it. As for the authoritarian systems or those drifting into authoritarianism, it's, they really have had a, a field day, uh, whether this is in Hungary, the Philippines, Brazil, Israel, the UAE. But we've also seen such trends within democracies such as the US and France and elsewhere. So that's for the role of the states. Then I think we can also see three other such dynamics, which have also, and I insist on this, been present in the period before. The militarization that we've seen internationally, I think will in all likelihood persist, possibly deepen, stake in new forms. The sequence, by the way, starts with this phraseology. Remember how the French president, uh, Macron, used the phrase, we're at war, no less than six times in his address to the nation in, in mid-March. Uh, and you're seeing now these military officers delivering these press briefings or speaking of being engaged, quote-unquote, on the front. And I think this is really a, a, an important component of this discussion. We have downgraded our ability to understand crises merely in martial terms. And, and that's something that the current crisis will certainly um, possibly deepen. And then there's the acceleration of the patterns of surveillance. Again, we've seen a lot of that expanded over the past 20 years, uh, but we, I think we're embarking on an update of it. Uh, see how much in recent weeks you've had this conversation about intrusive tracing and travel restrictions and facial recognition, the whole digitalization of authorized interaction, all in the name, of course, of security. Terrorism yesterday, health today. And so finally, and this is more introspective for sure, I think we might see as a result of this global moment, a type of a wave which I call counter-globalization. It's not so much an ideologically based one. We've seen a lot of these anti-globalization movements since at least the 90s, right? I think it's more something of a, a, of a social and a political inclination within societies to think or to look at globalization uh, with more suspicion as a vector of danger penetrating our societies, whatever 
in whichever our societies are. And I think this might connect with the elitist, the racist talk among some nationalist movements here and there. And I think this can fuel further, by the way, the authoritarianism and the statism that we were discussing um, at, the, at the very time that the world should be opening. Um, and I think these are some of the dynamics that you see certainly possibly playing out outside. A crisis always brings a level of uncertainty. You mentioned that this vector of the unknown will make post-corona geopolitics more social than political. How so? Yes, I think this is the more important um, and I think the most interesting, uh, really. So for all the analogies that, that we might have mentioned in terms of the importance of history and that we forget, there's, I think, equally a certain objective sort of novelty to what we're experiencing. And I think precisely... Um, it has to do with the way Corona is unpacking for us this notion of unpredictability. Now, we've been playing with this notion, unpredictability, for a while. But we were doing so, I'd say, relatively safely, so to speak. It was more an extension of what we actually knew, scenario planning, um, rather than black warning, so to speak. But Corona has opened up new dimension. And one of them is that these geopolitics that we use to think of in terms of engagement between states uh, and bilaterals are now possibly moved to the social realm, social, the social impact of it for good and bad. And this may be both a projection of each society onto the world, right? But also how the, the society speaks amongst themselves. And so the key notion is that there is a blurring of all the fields that we know, the economy and the cultural and the, and, and the social and the political. And therefore, logically, the geopolitics will speak this new grammar uh, or rather speak it with a little bit more of an accent. And I think this is, this is incidentally a configuration that is quite fertile because it could be also opening the possibility to to redesign, to reoccupy the geopolitics with, uh, with social concerns. Great. Thank you for that. And thank you for your participation in this podcast series. My pleasure, Dan. My next guest is Professor Radonio, who gives his opinions on the historical impact of the coronavirus. In your opinion, what will be the historic impact of the coronavirus? We already see the uh, the impact of, of the virus on our lives uh, at so many different levels, individual at level of, of the family, uh, the broader social level. Of course, we do talk a lot about the economic and the political impact uh, of uh, of the virus of the virus, but uh, I, I I think it would be. Uh, um, impressive, gigantic uh, in so many respects on the way uh, people live their lives. Uh, even small details. This morning I was reading on uh, the future of shaking hands, uh, which is a very an almost ancestral uh, uh, custom, at least in Europe and in other parts of the world. So, uh, so many things are, are going to, to change. I cannot anticipate uh, how long these changes will last. Uh, some of them might be ephemeral, uh, others might be persistent and, and last uh, uh, very long. What, what I can uh, say, I'm pretty sure that uh, so many of these, uh, these changes uh, are conspicuous, are important, are relevant, and uh, uh, are going to uh, uh, force us to reconsider a number of things, including the way we teach, probably. 
Great. And from a historian's point of view, what will be the geopolitical consequences? There again, I mean, historians are uh, very well placed to tell you uh, very, very different stories. If you think about uh, uh, the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, uh, and probably even 1920, which was by far the most devastating pandemic uh, of the 20th century, um, it is quite surprising uh, to, 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 to see that, for instance, in the League of Nations records, uh, even though the League of Nations was extremely interested in epidemics, uh, the Spanish flu has very little place. Um, so uh, uh, there, there were no direct geopolitical consequences or at least the ways in which at the international level uh, the Spanish flu was dealt with uh, is, is very surprising. Um, of course, there were, were, were consequences because millions of people died uh, because of, of, of the virus. But the ways in which the international community dealt with it were um, uh, uh, conspicuous by their absence, so to say. Uh, so uh, in this particular case, it is very difficult to, uh, to say what will be uh, the, the consequences. Uh, we have seen... Uh, in many places around the world, uh, a, a trend toward, you know, uh, not only closing frontiers down as if the virus could be stopped, but also uh, a way in which um, uh, governments prefer to deal to deal with the, with the virus at the national level rather than seeking for cooperation. Uh, this was the uh, uh, this was uh, so evident in Europe, for instance, uh, and so one might wonder what will be the future uh, uh, that uh, policymakers, European policymakers, uh, will take away from from the virus. Uh, is there a European Union? Uh, is there a European Union that uh, uh, can uh, look after European citizens in in cases uh, of of a next uh, pandemic? Uh, what is the meaning of international cooperation in the in these situations? So there will be consequences. I I, I don't know exactly what the consequences consequences will be. They can go in opposite directions, either increasing this trend toward a repli national, repli national, or on the contrary, uh, uh, the lesson learned would be the following: We should seek for. Uh, further international cooperations, and maybe if we uh, uh, cooperate more, uh, we will be more efficient in, in stopping uh, or dealing with pandemics. And could there be any potential positives that come out of this crisis? Of course, plenty of things. Plenty of things. Um, first of all, I think that the ways in which many people um, what we do refer to civil society in particular, and many young people are uh, connecting uh, the COVID crisis with, uh, uh, with climate change. And so there are plenty of efforts in terms in that, that concerns the ways in which we think about consumption, uh, we think about uh, traveling, we think about uh, everyday lives, uh, plastic, and, uh, or the abuses or uses of abuses of, uh, of water. Um, these are all things that uh, could be, uh, in a way, 
positive consequences uh, of, of the virus. The ways in which we have been dealing, at least in Switzerland or in Europe or in other places, with, uh, 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 with uh, public health at the national level, cuts in, in, in expenditures for, uh, for the public sector, and specifically the health sector, the health public sector. Um, maybe, maybe some policymakers in some uh, or some governments in some places will reflect on the ways in which things have been done for the last few years. So, uh, um, I do believe that there are many potential positives, and so many people do not want to go back to uh, normal as yesterday's normal. They are seeking to use. Uh, the uh, coronavirus crisis as a positive stepping stone to change a number of things. So in any case, this was uh, a, a, um, a, an opportunity since almost everything was locked down, but our brains were not to think about uh, the ways in which we do things. A century ago, people kept written journals during the 1918 flu pandemic. Today, many are sharing their experiences through social media, audio, email, etc. How will this impact the work of future historians and will this help people better prepare for future pandemics? This will certainly impact the work of future historians. We already talk a lot about the archaeology of the internet and the archaeology of uh, social media. So uh, uh, the fact that so many things that people used to write intimately in private journals uh, will be accessible to some extent uh, to some people in the future, uh, at, less, uh, at least for, for, for public profiles, uh, it's, uh, it's um, helpful. Uh, the inordinate amount of information might be very problematic. This is something that historians will have to deal with, but there are so many ways in which we can deal with uh, huge amounts of data today that I'm confident we will find methodological ways to, to deal with, uh, with all this uh, massive information in intelligent ways. Um, will this be a way of, um, of um, uh, you know, dealing in... A, better with the next uh, pandemic? This I don't know, uh, because it seems to me that uh, so many times uh, we turn a deaf ear to past experiences or we used uh, uh, past information in really in the worst possible ways uh, that I, I do not really believe in, in, in lessons learned, quite, quite, quite the contrary. Um, I am, uh, on the contrary, way more uh, intrigued uh, by the way uh, people have, um, we have all uh, changed the way we think about life and death. And that there is so much on uh, um, social media uh, that uh, might be very, very interesting for future research by historians and by many other scholars, of course. Well, thank you for all of the interesting answers and thank you for participating in this podcast series. Thank you very much. My final guest is Efrat Gilad, who shares her thoughts about the impact of the coronavirus on food production. According to a recent New York Times article about the impact of the coronavirus on meat production, recessions, basically any difficult financial times, have sometimes meant that people eat less meat, at least temporarily. Is this what we're seeing now? That's a great question because that article 
the economist Jason Lusk, who who that comment is referred to about, you know, prices of meat going up, incomes falling, and then the consumption of meat falls, is also the same economist who was on the Freakonomics uh, podcast. That's actually a great podcast, by the way. And he uh, was describing going into a supermarket in the US. And I think we've all experienced that other places, definitely in Switzerland, for example, where you go into the supermarket, there's this um, knowledge of, of all this kind of stress. And we know that there's going to be a lockdown soon. And he describes empty shelves, but not only empty shelves of pasta, rice, and you know canned goods, so your staple starches, who, which are both inexpensive and non-perishable, pretty much. He said he got really nervous when he saw the meat, the meat aisles empty, and that also happened here. And the question is, why? Why would meat fly off the shelves when it's expensive and incredibly perishable? And so his his response is kind of more of a behavioral economics response or or an explanation, and that has to do with comfort. So what he says is that, and I, I agree, is that in times of great uncertainty, people kind of lean towards comfort and comfort foods. And in that sense, meat is definitely a comfort food for many people. Meat is a treat. And so immediately what we're seeing now is just kind of meat flying off the shelves. Um, and so not immediately this um, fall in consumption, for example. Those empty shelves also correspond in a way to empty restaurants, right? So if we would get a lot of our meat and our food in general from eating out, now we're actually purchasing it and cooking it ourselves. So it's not exactly the same level of, of meat consumption perhaps in other times, but, but there is that consideration that we just are cooking more ourselves. And I would say, yes, historically, there is a connection between recessions and, and a fall in meat consumption. But I think the key word exactly is temporary. So there could also just be a shift towards less expensive meats. Uh, so chicken, not beef, there are less expensive cuts. And in general, it's a temporary fall, if you will. And if we think about it in a global perspective, which I think we should definitely add the global perspective here. It's true that after 2008, the, the, the economic crisis in the US, beef consumption, for example, didn't definitely or didn't totally recover as did uh, chicken, for example. But actually, no one is really looking or was looking to the US, to North America, to Europe for global growth in meat consumption. So those markets are massive, but growth was always or has been for a long time predicted uh, in Asia and specifically in China. And so those are the fastest growing markets. We know that growing urban middle classes are, are demanding or are growing actually their meat appetites and they're, they're demanding more meat. And that's definitely where all the predictions have been looking towards. And I'd kind of end on, on another thought we should, we should think of. Of course, COVID-19 and the coronavirus and this economic downturn, the recession that we're going to experience is relevant, of course, to the to meat consumption, food consumption, for sure. However, moments before coronavirus became so popular, I don't think many people were aware of or hearing or actually remember that, for example, there are several other issues, diseases, germs that um, the meat industry is kind of having to deal with. So the African swine fever in the world, but also specifically in China during 2019 has killed millions, millions. So Af so the African swine fever has killed or is responsible for something like 100 million pigs dying or something like 
40 to 60 percent of the pig population of China, which is the biggest consumer of pork. So that industry is, is really hit hard. So there's a few considerations and a few um, aspects that we, sh- we can think of that have to do with COVID-19, but also have to do with other factors. Great. Thanks for that. And there was an article in The Guardian recently that highlighted that meat plants around the world are struggling with coronavirus outbreaks. And the reason for this seems to be a combination of many factors, including crowded working conditions and the fact that meat plants have remained open during the crisis. It almost sounds like meat and processed food plant workers have been defined as essential workers. Is that the case? Yes, in a way they have, which is which is really an interesting thing if you think about it, you know, is it is an essential is it as essential as a nurse? These are things we could think about now and we could think about towards the post-covid world for for sure about our our relationship with the services that we receive. Especially, I thought, I heard a, a very, quite profound, almost it was an ironic comment by a U.S. Postal Service um, employee. And he asked, are we essential or are we sacrificial? And I thought that was incredibly profound of way to, 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 to pose that, these questions as we kind of look into how we're going to recover from this situation. And definitely mate workers historically and today currently are vulnerable groups, uh, often migrant workers. And this is the case in Germany, in the US, in Brazil. And it's often um, what happens in these meat plants is because there's no social distancing, not for the animals and not for the humans, they become hotspots, but also because of the types of accommodations that often migrants live in, for example, in Germany, this was the case, also help spread the virus among them. And so we've seen really across the world and not in countries that are kind of random, it, the countries that are the world's producers and the world's suppliers of, of meat and beef, Germany, US, Brazil, Australia, we've seen that countries who respond slowly have, of course, the most, and I'm talking about hundreds of, of um, infected people and sometimes uh, and there's been quite a few deaths as well and so i've seen this article and there's also i've seen other articles that mention kind of the how the coronavirus is exposing the vulnerability of meat workers and i think yes that's true because otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation right now but also we've known about the vulnerability and we've known about the difficult work conditions the crowdedness the you know, the hours, the hygiene, we've known of of this for over 100 years. So a historical example would be quite a famous one, for for meat historians at least, The Jungle. The Jungle was a novel published in 1906 by journalist Upton Sinclair. What he actually wanted to do when he went around the Union stockyards in Chicago, which was this huge huge, let's say, you know, slaughterhouse and meat planting facilities, processing, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of animals, actually. Uh, and this operated for over 100 years. And so what he, what he wanted to do there was to see the, um, the condition of, of workers and publish how, how badly treated and how vulnerable these workers are. And um, he, he did it as kind of a socialist activist. What happened was that in his kind of sensationalist descriptions of this pretty, you know, horrifying place uh, where, you know, if uh, the, a worker would have an accident, so basically his limb would just 
fall into the meat grinder along with the pork. Something. Sorry, sorry about the description, but stuff like that. What happened was that people in the United States who wrote, who read it, were so disturbed by the meat aspect. So, but by the meat that is processed and they are eating there, rather than the rights of the workers there. And so then the the risk of now exposing, quote unquote, the, these, these conditions is that we might redirect again or kind of misplace our attention towards not even animal welfare, welfare or workers' rights, but again towards the wholesomeness of meat, which of course is an important issue as well. And, uh, you know, that 1906 Federal Meat Inspection Act followed exactly this novel, but uh, still it leaves a lot to kind of to, to, to ask at least about how we are treating the human beings who are serving our, our plates, basically. And my final question for you is, how will the coronavirus impact the future of food consumption and production? I just read an article um, on Forbes, and um, it was very definitive and very clear that the future of food is going to change in these five ways. And it mentioned, we're all going to eat healthier to boost our immunity. We're all going to eat local and organic. There's going to be tighter control on food safety. And we're going to see China crack down on these outdoor markets where allegedly COVID-19 had begun. And I'm quite skeptical that all or any of these are going to change that, um, you know, clearly and immediately or in the near future. A, because humans tend to have short and selective memories. And B, because to be honest, most people can't afford all that, that local organic changes in their consumption. And do you know what? Once, uh, once people, if they can actually get to the point where they can afford more, do you want to guess what they, what they actually buy more of? Meat. So, so basically once, once they do, if they have the, the, the opportunity, they buy more meat. And so I'm, I think I'm more inclined to carefully watching trends that started before COVID-19 and kind of to watch them evolve and continue to evolve. That some of them, by the way, are part of these five, you know, healthier or organic food control, but there's always a pushback. And so, for example, if we think of the future of meat, there's not only these plant-based meat alternatives, which are already big business right now, that's kind of that seem as the, the future of meat. There's also this kind of new or technologically more advanced uh, lab-grown meat and cell-based meat, which is essentially, you know, a steak produced using cultivated animal cells in a lab. And so these startups are actually raising millions in investments and tech is being tested. Uh, start this, this kind of technology is being tested in the US, in Europe, in Israel, in China, basically everywhere where the biggest producers are. But again, there's pushback. So traditional meat industry or that the traditional meat industry has been challenging even the name meat, the term meat for or burger by, for, for these plant-based alternatives. But there's also this kind of clean eating trend, which is also pushing back in a way because they're quite wary of um, these hyper-processed products. And so from a historical perspective, you could also say, well, you know, technology is very interesting and this is, you know, an interesting advancement in science, 
But this would mean a stake that has a pretty hefty price tag if it's so, you know, because of the technology involved. And so it might be more sustainable, but it would perpetuate the ingrained inequality of meat, the historical inequality, which in which the rich have access to it and the poor don't. And so that for some would be still an issue. However, even there, we can see new initiatives or new ideas where if we mix plant-based meat with lab-based meat in one product, you could even then have a more a sustainable and more affordable product. But, you know, these are all very uh, cutting edge, very um, perhaps exciting for some developments, which are really gaining lots of investments. And I guess they're the one to watch in terms of the future of food and the future of meat. Very interesting. And I want to thank you for your time and answers and participating in this podcast series. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's the end of our first episode in this special post-coronavirus series. Once again, I'd like to thank Mohamed Mahmoud Mohamedou, Davide Rodonio, and Efrat Gilad for sharing their views on the historical impact of the coronavirus. This podcast series is produced by the Graduate Institute Communications Team. For more information about the Graduate Institute, please visit our website at graduateinstitute.ch. I'm Dan Graham. Thanks for listening.